Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. week three of a series of talks looking at the life of a guy called David in the Old Testament books of 1 and 2 Samuel. And if I had to give today's talk a title, I think it would be, How Should We Live During Times of Pain and Suffering? And more broadly, we're going to be touching on one of the biggest hot potatoes of them all. Why would a loving God allow suffering in the first place? Because we are going to be looking at a very dark time during David's life. Uh, Let's just start by reminding ourselves where we pick up the story. Uh, David is a young guy in his mid to late teens, and a prophet called Samuel comes to him and anoints him and says, one day you are going to be king over the entire nation of Israel. An amazing promise to live with for the future. Well, the king of Israel at the time is a guy called Saul. He's leading the Israelites in a military campaign against a nasty group of people called the Philistines. They are into some really dark stuff, uh, sacrificing children, uh, cultic prostitution, and the like. And there is one particular Philistine who is especially difficult to overcome, a giant over nine foot tall, we are told, called Goliath. And he swaggers out every morning and taunts the Israelites, saying, is any of you brave enough to face me? And nobody is, apart from David. He steps up with a few stones and a sling, kills Goliath dead, and in that moment, in a flash, becomes a national hero. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 18 and verse 7 says, the people end up making up songs about David. Saul, our king, he's killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. Everybody seems to love David. He's the man. The future surely looks bright from here on in. That's where we pick up the story. Unfortunately for David, it's at this point that things start going downhill very fast indeed. You see, while everybody seems to like David, there is one significant person who does not, and that is Saul, the king. Essentially, he's jealous and afraid, jealous of David's success and afraid that that success will lead David to steal the throne from him. And those seeds of jealousy and fear end up getting very dark very quickly. And within just 10 verses of that amazing victory over Goliath, Saul ends up trying to kill David. And by the end of that chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 18, we read, Saul remained David's enemy for the rest of his days. And so begins a really dark period in David's life. You can see some of it summarized on the screen behind me. Saul tries to kill David in a number of ways. He starts by sending him out into battle against the Philistines. He thinks David will lose. Unfortunately for Saul, he wins. He tries to kill David up close twice by throwing a spear at him. He tries to trick David and ambush him, sends troops to his room to stab him, and he ends up rallying an army of over 3,000 troops whose sole purpose is to kill David. On top of all of that, David is facing some battles on other fronts as well. The Philistines, somewhat obviously, he killed their man Goliath, and another thoroughly nasty group of people called the Amalekites. Nowhere is safe for David. He has no refuge, no protection. David is alone, desperate and afraid, and all because he killed a giant. And for the next few years, David basically ends up fleeing for his life. You can see a map coming up of his crazy flight on the screen behind me. He hides out in deserts, strongholds, caves, and adopts some curious tactics just to stay alive. On one occasion during this period, he hides out with an enemy king and pretends he's gone utterly mad just to try and preserve his life. 
And this whole period takes up most of the next 17 chapters of the story in 1 Samuel and the early chapters of 2 Samuel. And it lasts anything from around about 7 up to 13 years of David just fleeing for his life. And it's during this period that David experiences some of the most painful and traumatic emotions that you could imagine. He pours them out in a whole load of psalms. He writes for certain 10 during this period, probably many more. But coming up on the screen behind me, the reason they're in that curious order is that is more likely the order in which he wrote them rather than the order in which they appear in the book of Psalms. And it's during these that he expresses some really raw emotions. I'm sure, I'm sure many of you know the words that Jesus speaks when he's hanging on the cross, dying in agony. My God, my God, why have you left me? Written by David centuries earlier, Psalm 22, very possibly during this period. It was a dark, dark time in David's life. And that is the period that we are looking at today. 17 chapters 7 to 13 years, what do we learn from David's life that can teach us how we should live during times of pain and suffering? And more broadly, why would a loving God allow David to go through all of that in the first place? And I think it's worth acknowledging at the outset that in our cozy Western bubble, many of us are woefully ill-equipped to answer such a question. You see, as recently as a few decades ago, and for centuries before that, an important part of a child's upbringing would be to prepare them for grief and pain and suffering. This was when the mortality rate was so much higher, many less cures for the kind of diseases for which we have treatments today. Life was just much more fragile. And so parents felt an obligation, way more than they do today, to prepare their children for grief and pain and suffering. Some of you will know of a famous Christian prayer that parents taught their children to that very end. It's from the 18th century, it's over 300 years old. My parents taught me this growing up. Crazy to think parents got kids to pray this before bedtime. Words are on the screen. Now I lay me down to sleep and pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Well, that's going to cheer a kid up before bedtime, isn't it? Night, honey. Sleep well, sweet dreams. See you in the morning, or not, depending on what happens. Ah, daddy! Just kind of illustrates the point. In our Western cocoon right now, we are more protected probably than at any point in history before us. And as a result, we are probably less equipped to know how to live through pain and suffering than pretty much any generation that's gone before us. What do we learn from David's life during this 7 to 13 year period as to how we should walk through pain and suffering? And more broadly, when I look at the news headlines right now, terror threats, fire tragedies in this city in which we live, fear and anxiety about the future in the wake of election results, it seems like a pretty apt subject to me. How should we live through pain and suffering? I want to suggest three very simple things, could do more, just want to stick with three. And the first is this, we should cultivate our inner life. We should cultivate our inner life. Through this entire story, one of the most obvious comparisons is that between David and Saul, with one kingdom steadily emerging and another coming crashing down. And one of the most obvious comparisons is the one that Liam brilliantly brought out in the first talk in this series. It is their focus. You see, Saul is utterly consumed with the external. 
You may remember he's described as the most good-looking guy in the whole kingdom, head and shoulders taller than everybody else. And during this period, he remains obsessed with maintaining that image. His whole hatred of David stems from the fact he thinks David might have killed more people than he had. At one point, after making a mistake, he pleads with the prophet Samuel to help him look good in front of all of the people. At another point, he ends up slaughtering all of the priests, apart from one called Ahimelech, who escapes and goes over to David. And that is significant because it means Saul loses all access to hearing God in this context. Inwardly, he is empty. He is morally bankrupt. He is consumed with the external. And as an aside, depending on your worldview, that is one way to walk through pain and suffering. You see, if God is not real, or he is real, but he's not loving and doesn't care very much, then what do you do during pain and suffering? You make the best of what you've got. Get as much fun and comfort and pleasure out there as you possibly can. That is sore. Consume with the external. David could not be more different. On the outside, he is thoroughly unimpressive. You may remember, not even his dad deems him kingly material. Leaves him out in the fields when Samuel comes. He can't possibly be the future king. And during this season, it gets even worse. He's described in 1 Samuel chapter 24 as a dead dog and a flea. This is not a guy that you would look at and think, oh, here's a guy with a bright future. And yet on the inside, a whole load of stuff is going on. Some of the most moving profound and powerful prayers to God ever written come from David during this period. Some of them are coming up on the screen behind me. He prays things like, record my lament, list my tears on your scroll. Aren't they in your record? The cords of death entangled me. Set me free from my prison. You see, sometimes when it comes to living through pain and suffering, there are no profound answers. There is just deep pain. That is what David expresses. He brings it all to God in here and in the midst of the pain and the suffering. It is not only there that it shapes him and changes him and builds character for future kingship and leadership, but it is in the midst of the pain that he encounters God. Saul is consumed with the external. David cultivates his inner life. Now, of course, to some people, that might seem like a wholly unsatisfactory answer. You see, if God is so amazing and so loving, why does he let David go through this in the first place? Why does he wait to meet him in the midst of the suffering? One of the biggest hot potatoes of them all. And there are some deep answers to that question. But I want to just focus on a simple one. And I think possibly it is this. Why does a loving God allow suffering? Perhaps God thinks love and life and freedom is worth it. You see, if God steps into control and protects us from pain at every moment, every time he does that, he has to reduce our freedom. And if you think about that, that means we lose the opportunity for love and life and joy completely the more that he has to do that. Let me try and explain it this way. Many of you know that I am the daddy of three children, and that includes two beautiful little girls, age four and one. They're coming up on the screen behind me. There are my munchkins, Mia and Emily. Now, I want you to imagine that I sit them on my knee and I say, Mia, Emily, daddy wants to talk to you about something. One day in the future, you are going to meet a handsome prince and he is going to sweep you off your feet, and it'll be the most amazing thing. But Daddy has had a look at some of the prospects in Christchurch, London. <laughs> and he feels that he needs to do a little deal with you. You are not allowed to get married unless Daddy says so. He thinks there are some boys out there that won't treat you in the way that you should be treated, so you can't get married unless Daddy allows it. What do you think? Well, we all know in a few years' time, I'm going to have a rebellion on my hands. My motives might be good, 
But the more I step in to control and protect them, the more I rob them of the chance of finding real love. And so, as a loving father, I have to take a risk. A risk that they might experience heartbreak, but I have to conclude that love is worth it. And so, as a loving daddy, I have decided. When they're 45, they can choose anybody they want. (laughs) Anybody here who has experienced the wonder and glory of love, you know the vulnerability and pain that comes with it. Maybe you remember the first time you fell in love. and You're five years old and you're in a crowded room. You see somebody on the other side, you're like, wow, they're so beautiful, I'm in love. And you find out it's your cousin. (laughs) You get all disappointed, have to move on, depending on where you live in the UK. (laughs) We all know love is wonderful, but the vulnerability and pain that comes with it is part of its splendor. The great Oxford professor and author C.S. Lewis wrote about this book on this subject called The Problem of Pain. He says this, Try to exclude the possibility of suffering, which the order of nature and the existence of free wills involve, and you find that you've excluded life itself. Now, of course, someone might say, well, Andy, I kind of get what you're saying. But couldn't a loving God step in and prevent tragedies like car accidents happening, for example? And I want to say a couple of things on this. Firstly, the Bible does make clear that God does step in and stop some suffering. The book of Thessalonians in the New Testament, for example, says the Holy Spirit restrains evil. You see, too often I look at the brokenness in our world and the pain in my own life, and I forget to thank God for the accident that did not happen. I forget to express gratitude for the pain I could have experienced but did not. I forget to be grateful for the injustice that could have happened but in the end never came to pass, and it is really important that we keep that perspective in mind. But we must also think through the implications of what we are asking God to do. You see, if God always stepped in and stopped every single accident from happening, what would we do? We'd just drive down the road as fast as possible thinking, no problem. God's got it sorted. You see, every time we ask God to step in, if real choices don't have consequences, what happens is our freedom is reduced. And the more and more and more and more that God steps in, our freedom is restricted more and more and more, meaning at the end, if you follow that thought through to its logical conclusion, we are reduced to nothing more than robots with no free will at all. The whole wonder and splendor of love and life necessitates the possibility of pain. In other words, one of the simplest answers to the question, why would a loving God allow suffering, is this. Maybe God thinks love and life is worth it. Now, if that is true, what it means is this, in the midst of pain and suffering, if we choose to go deep in here, not only can it produce character and form us and shape us and change us if we let it, but in the midst of the pain and suffering, we can find the grace and mercy and power and love of God himself if we go looking for it. We find love and God in the midst of suffering. Let me just fire a few quotes at you to that end. The first is from a New York Times journalist, called David Brooks. This is in an article entitled The Fearful Gift of Suffering. When people remember the past, they don't only talk about happiness. It's often the ordeals that seem most significant. People shoot for happiness, but feel formed through suffering. Author and speaker Brené Brown, who suffered a breakdown several years ago, puts it like this. I went back to church thinking it would be like an epidural, like it would take the pain away, and then I discovered faith in church was not like an epidural at all. It was like a midwife who stood next to me and said, push, it's supposed to hurt. C.S. Lewis again, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Think about that. 
Just imagine like with fire, if I put my hand in, ooh, ouch, the pain is a reminder, there's danger there. Be careful. What if, at least in some cases, pain is God's way of dealing with us the same? Saul, there is a better life for you. Don't pursue banal external things. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse the deaf world. There are many verses in the Bible that speak of this. Just a couple, Romans 5. talks about pain producing maturity in a character. Hebrews, I think remarkably, chapter 5, talks about even Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. And sometimes I find it rather extraordinary that it is often those who have suffered the most who have the deepest faith. Some of you may know of a lady called Bestie Ten Boom. She uh, lost her life in the Ravensbrück concentration camp during the Second World War. As she lay dying, she said these words. We must tell them there is no pit so deep that he is not deeper still. They will listen to us, Corrie, for we have been here. How do we live through pain and suffering? We cultivate our inner life. Don't focus on the externals. Go deep in here. Just one final illustration on this, as if to labour the point. Uh, just over a month ago, I was on a uh, kind of retreat with a bunch of leaders from across the country. And on one of the mornings, one of the leaders did a little devotional. And one of the images that he used has stayed with me ever since. Outside the hotel where we were staying was a tree, long since dead. But it had kind of been hollowed out on the inside. Best approximation, uh, an image on the internet is coming up on the screen behind me. I should have taken a photo at the time. But he reflected that at one point this tree would have looked very impressive on the outside. Maybe people even sat in its shade and nobody would have known it was just being eaten up within by mold or insects or animals. He said the very same thing can happen to people. Impressive on the outside, empty on the inside. I was reflecting a couple of weeks ago with a friend of mine about a church leader that I knew growing up, respected him very much, books published all around the world, incredible man, incredible ministry. And one day he made a very public mistake, so embarrassing it made newspapers. And I can promise you this, that that guy did not wake up one morning and think, you know what, today I'm going to make a, just an embarrassing mistake. There would have been stuff going on inside of him for a long time before that moment. Can I ask you a rhetorical question? What is going on inside of you right now? I mean, you look like a very beautiful and impressive group of people, if you don't mind me saying. But then so did Saul. If Saul had come in here, we'd be like, oh, wow, check him out. He's a man. Inside, he was empty. He was morally bankrupt. What about you? How's it going in here? How do we live through pain and suffering? We must cultivate our inner life. Secondly, how do we live through pain and suffering? We must remember the bigger story. Another contrast between Saul and David during this 7 to 13 year period is their perspective. See, Saul is focused on the temporary. If I kill David, problem solved. If I get rid of the Philistines, if I enlarge my kingdom, problem solved. David has none of that to hang on to. So he has to remember a broader picture, some bigger truths. What are the bigger truths? I want to suggest two. Firstly this, God suffers. God suffers. And if you read through the story of 1 and 2 Samuel, you don't often get God's perspective. Occasionally, David's prayer life gives us a broader perspective. And sometimes it's easy to assume that, oh, God's just up in the clouds, doesn't really care. Often people say that and think that today. Actually, at one point we read of God being grieved. Oh, I gave you a king. I gave you the one you wanted and, oh, the pain. Sometimes we read of a God being righteously angry, just like I would be angry if someone hurt my children. 
God whose heart is breaking. If this book, the Bible, is primarily a story about God and people doing relationship, we must remember that it's not just people who suffer, God suffers too. And as we look at this story from a New Testament perspective, we all know the pain for God is only going to get worse. Why? It's going to take him to a cross. We've already seen that some of the words David is writing, without fully realising it, gets spoken by Jesus on the cross itself. The most profound answer to the problem of suffering is not a trite answer, it is a person, the suffering saviour, Jesus Christ. God suffers too. Many of you will know of a quite brilliant Oxford professor, mathematician called John Lennox. He's living proof that you can be brilliantly intelligent and follow Jesus at the same time. And he's written a book called Gunning for God, one of many. If you are exploring faith, by the way, you may want to check this out. I think it's a really great read, Well, I've read of it at least. And he tells a story in that book of travelling through Eastern Europe. And he gets talking to a lady who also lost her parents and other relatives during the Holocaust, and she's doing some research. And they walk past an exhibition which spoke of the brutalities that the Nazis took, particularly on children. And she turns to John Lennox and she wags a finger in his face and she says, and what does your religion say to this? John Lennox writes these words, what was I to say? I had nothing in my life that remotely paralleled the horror her family had endured. But she stood in the doorway waiting for an answer. I eventually said, I would not insult the memory of your parents by offering you simplistic answers to your question. I have no easy answers. But I do have what, for me at least, is a doorway to an answer. You know I'm a Christian. That means I believe Jesus is the Messiah. If, as I believe, he really was God, what was he doing on a cross? Could it be that God begins just here to meet our heartbreaks by showing he didn't remain distant from our human suffering, but by becoming part of it himself? For me, this is the beginning of hope. According to John Lennox, this woman pauses for a long time and eventually says these words, why did no one tell me this? Why did no one tell me about a suffering God? The answer to the problem of suffering is a person, and whatever you are going through, or have ever gone through, or will ever go through, Jesus knows, Jesus understands, and the prayers of David during this dark period speak of that. God suffers too. And of course, best of all, it doesn't end there. A credit to a brilliant speaker and author called John Ortberg for some of these insights. I'm a big fan of his. The best bits are probably his, not mine. But 1 Corinthians 15 in the New Testament is interesting on this. Let me read you a verse. The Apostle Paul writes these words, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, and I've underlined it again, he says, according to the Scriptures. You see, it's interesting, if you read through the Old Testament, you find a whole load of what I'm kind of describing as third-day stories. Let me just whip through a few of them for you. Book of Genesis, Old Testament. We read of Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat. His brothers are locked up in prison. They are released on the third day. Joshua chapter 2, two spies hiding from their enemies. They find safety on the third day. Book of Esther, the queen finds out of a plot to annihilate her people. She fasts, she prays, she's received by the king on the third day. Back to Genesis again. Abraham asked to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac. God speaks and provides a substitute sacrifice on the third day. There's one in this long passage that we are looking at today, if you look hard enough. 1 Samuel 29 to 30. David has a motley crew of people rallying to him. In debt, discontented people. 
And they're off fighting one battle, and while they're fighting it, the Amalekites come and raid their camp and capture all the women and children. And David and his men kind of despair. We're told that David's men talk about stoning David to death. Now it's not just Saul, the Philistines and the Amalekites. Now his very men want to kill him. What does he do? He rallies the troops. He hunts them down. He gets to his camp on the third day, chases down the Amalekites, gets the women and children back, and a bunch of plunder besides. There are a bunch more of these third day stories. It becomes such a recurring pattern in the Old Testament that the prophet Hosea prays these words, Come, let us return to the Lord. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will restore us that we may live in his presence. Third day stories everywhere. Now of course the best of all third day stories happen to Jesus, crucified on Friday, resurrected on Sunday. Now some of you might say, well hang on Andy, crucified Friday, resurrected Sunday, that's just over one day, that is not three days. Well in Jewish thinking even part of a day was considered as a whole day. Let me give you a silly, silly, silly example of this. I want you to imagine a hypothetical married couple with three young children. And imagine the father decides to go away on Friday evening for a nice retreat, to pray and reflect and spend time with Jesus. And he returns on Sunday morning replenished and raring to go. And his wife says, husband, you have been away for three days and left me with three young children to care for. You are not going on one of those retreats again. The husband says, oh, wife, come on, I left on Friday, I came back on Sunday. That's just over one day caring for the three children. He says one day, she says three days, who's right? <laughs> all right, all right, okay, yeah, yeah, she is. Point is this, third day stories everywhere. Here is how they work. On the first day, there is trouble. On the third day, there is deliverance. But here's the curious thing about third day stories. What happens on the second day? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Apart from maybe one thing, prayer. Waiting. Crying out to God, oh, bring on the third day. You see, it's really hard to know you are part of a third day story until when? The third day. You see, you don't know that you are part of a third day story when you are waiting and longing on the second day. Unless, unless, unless someone has come back and told you the story that you are part of. Let's take a longer run up to this. Uh, we are huge fans here of C.S. Lewis's epic Chronicles of Narnia. We quote it often here at Christchurch. The story, in short form, Lion, Witch in the Wardrobe, is a magical land, Narnia, under the power of a wicked witch. Always winter, never Christmas. And through the power of a mighty lion, Aslan, gives up his life, comes back from the dead. The witch's power is broken. Winter thaws. Springtime comes. There is hope for the future. Brilliant third day story. But The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe is one of six books in the Narnia series. And there is a little known scene in the sixth book where all of the children who have ever had their lives changed by Narnia are together with Aslan apart from one. They're all there, Peter, Lucy, Edmund, Eustace, but one, a certain Susan Pevensey, is missing. And we never find out why until almost the very end of the book where we read these words. My sister Susan, answered Peter shortly and gravely, is no longer a friend of Narnia. Yes, said Eustace. And whenever you've tried to get her to come and talk about Narnia or do anything about Narnia, she says, what wonderful memories you have. Fancy you're still thinking about all those funny games we used to play when we were children. Susan has forgotten the story that she was part of. 
She tasted the wonder of Narnia. She witnessed Aslan's resurrection and she has grown old and cynical. That can happen to people too. They forget the story that they are part of. In all that David goes through, in this 7 to 13 year period, he never forgets the story that he's part of. Psalm 34, the Lord will rescue. He's coming. Second day now, third day's coming. Psalm 52, this is just after Saul has slaughtered all of the priests. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. Psalm 63, this is David in the desert, fleeing Saul. On my bed I remember the story, thinking of you. Through the watches of the night, I cling to you. Can I ask you a question? Do you remember the story that you're part of? Well, have you become like Susan Pevensey? Oh, pain and suffering, God can't be real. And you have stopped looking more deeply. Do you know the story? Do you really know the story that you're part of? One of the main reasons I'm here is the evidence for the resurrection. Have you looked at it? Some of you have heard me use this illustration before. I want you to imagine for a moment that you are standing in a hospital ward and you hear a blood-curdling scream. Ah! Well, it makes a world of difference where you are standing. If you are standing in the cancer unit, you know death is on the way. The end is near. But if you are standing in the maternity ward, you know life is on the way. Those pains take on a very different meaning. Now, I was at my wife's side for the birth of each of our three children. And numbers two and three came very quickly indeed. But number one was very difficult for me. Uh, Joy was... (laughs) (laughs) Joy was in labour for over 64 hours. And, uh, oh, the moaning. (laughs) And, And after 50 hours... Uh, After 50 hours, I asked a question that I will forever regret asking. Uh, 50 hours of labour, no sign of the baby. I said to my wife, Joy, I said, Joy, do you think you're really in labour? Do you you think it's like one of those phantom labours that you hear about in the news? There are women here who've had babies who are giving me unhelpful stares right now. (laughs) This is church, we forgive. (laughs) And for 14 more hours, oh, the grumbling. (laughs) But then then came life. Now the point of the illustration is this. When the Bible describes the world in which we live in and the brokenness of it and even the mistakes that we make, people like me, it describes them as what? Painful birth pains. The pain is going to end. New life is on the way. How do I know? Somebody came back from the dead and told me, we're part of a third day story. Look at the resurrection. In the darkest of times, we have hope. Do you know it? Or have you grown cynical like Susan Pevensey? What story are you part of? How do we live through pain and suffering? We cultivate our inner life. Don't pursue meaningless external trivialities. Go deep in here. Secondly, remember, God suffers. He's with you. He knows. And it didn't end there. Third day story. And then thirdly and finally and most briefly, how do we live through pain and suffering? We look to remedy the suffering. Final thing that strikes me about David during this period is for all his very real pain, he never goes inward looking. He never wallows in self-pity. For all his pain, he still makes the world a different and better place out there. Another timeline with some of the highlights of this period coming up on the screen behind me. He continues to win battles over the Philistines. He welcomes anyone who comes to him. He protects the priest Ahimelech. He saves a town called Keilah. 
Interestingly, on two occasions, chapter 24, chapter 26, he has an opportunity to kill Saul, end the suffering, and he decides, I am not going to do that because I won't respond to violence with violence. I'm going to live a better kind of life, and the suffering endures because he wants to live a better kind of life. I could go on and on with the highlights. 2 Samuel 5, which is, comes up right at the very end of this period, says everything that David did pleased the people. In the midst of all this pain, he still made a difference out there. There is a lesson for us there as well. In the midst of pain, we can still change the world out there. I heard a remarkable story on this. Now, one of the ways I'm able to kind of keep up with the discipline of reading the Bible is the Bible in a Year application. B-I-O-Y. It's a free application. You can download it in a busy city, on the tube, on the bus. You can still uh, read the Bible every day. And uh, this was a story alongside the passage last month. You may have read it. It's a story about a guy called Stephen Lungu. Uh, he was born and raised in Zimbabwe. Uh, his mother, at just 13 years old, was given in marriage to a guy who was 50, and he beat and abused her. And she couldn't cope, and she turned to drink. And at just three years old, she took Stephen Lungu, his younger sister and brother, into a busy market square. She said, I'm just popping to the bathroom, and she never came back. These three children were taken into care, and Stephen was beaten and abused uh, he turned to drugs, started with glue, but went on to harder things. And he said, I hated God. I hated Jesus. I knew he could not be real because of the suffering I had experienced. Joined a very violent gang called uh, the Black Shadows. And uh, many years later, he heard of a big Christian event taking place in a large tent. He said, I'm going to go there. I'm going to kill everyone there. He got some bombs and some guns. He got his gang together. He said, I'm going to blow a whistle. When I blow the whistle, you will stand around this tent, throw your bombs in, then you will machine gun to death everybody else, and if you leave anybody alive, I will kill you. Took his gang to this tent. And he thought, I'm just going to take two minutes to go into this tent and inwardly mock the people I'm about to kill. He went in. As he went in, the speaker, a guy called Shadrach Maloka, was coming to the stage. And before he spoke, he said, I've been praying and I feel the Holy Spirit has nudged me. And maybe there is someone here who intends to do a lot of harm that might result in the deaths of many people. And as he spoke, Stephen Lungu thought, they found out my plan. He listened to this guy with rapt attention. At the end of the talk, he ran to the front, grabbed the speaker's feet and wept and wept. He said, it was like all the pain coming out. And I met the grace and mercy and power of God for the first time in my life. He said, I had no money. He'd never had a bath in his entire life. Woke up the next morning, a changed man. He said, God, what do you want me to do? He felt the spirit nudge him, go to the local police station and confess to your crimes. He had so many crimes to confess to, he was confessing for eight hours solid. At the end of his confession, the policeman went into a conference. They came back, they looked him in the eye, and one of them said this, if your Jesus forgives you, we forgive you too. You are free to go. Stephen Lungu had nothing, no money, thought, what am I going to do? He got on the first bus and he said, I'm just going to start telling people about the difference that Jesus makes to people's lives, and he has never stopped since. A few years ago, he was speaking at a large tent event similar to the one that he once went to bomb. He said, at the end of the talk, I called people forward to respond. Hundreds came forward, but there was one woman who was particularly just weeping and weeping. I knelt down beside her. I talked and discovered that it was my own mother who had abandoned me in that marketplace many years earlier. I forgave her. We embraced. He said, I led her to Jesus. Wonderful family reunion. That is the difference that Jesus makes to people's lives. That is why we do this as a church. That is why I love it that we partner with charities like International Justice Mission and Compassion. That's why I love it that we didn't just send a bit of money 
in the wake of the Grenfell fire attack, but we sent people to pray and support those who are anxious or afraid or hurting in the wake of the fire. That's why I love it that we look to start new projects and partner with existing ones. This is why we do this. Nothing changes lives like Jesus Christ. Now, over the last 20 years, I have sat with a lot of people who've been going through pain and suffering. And usually, often, normally, the best I can do is just sit with them and love them and cry with them and pray for them and serve them and hug them and do nothing else, not say a word. That's the best course of action. But sometimes, on occasion, the very best that I can do is lift people's eyes from their current circumstances and say, hey, whatever mistakes you have made, whatever pain lies in your past, God is not done with you yet and there is a future for you. Most of you will know that I am a Lord of the Rings nut. I have watched the movies more than any man really should. And uh, it's been a while since you had a Lord of the Rings quote, and I thought, hey, you deserve one. (laughs) And uh, my favourite bit in the movies, at least, is the battle for Helm's Deep. Death looks imminent. They're all holed up in this tower. And Theoden, the king, starts to despair. And he just starts saying this, so much hate, he says. What can man do against such reckless hate? (laughs) Every actor here is like, my job is safe. (laughs) And Aragorn, Aragorn just looks at him and he says, ride out with me. Ride out with me and meet them. For Rohan, yes, for Rohan. And they ride out and then Gandalf comes on his white horse and it's amazing and not as amazing as Jesus, but it's still amazing. (laughs) You know, I think when we read of the pain in our world right now, Headlines of brokenness. What would Jesus say? Ride out with me. Ride out with me. God isn't done with us yet. This is why we do this. And whatever you have been through, and whatever you are going through, God has a plan for your life. How do we live through pain and suffering? We go deep in here. Don't pursue external trivialities. You can find God there. Remember, God suffered too. More than we'll ever know or understand. And it didn't end there. Third day story, Jesus is alive. And then we ride out to make a difference out there. That's how we live through pain and suffering. I wonder if the band could come back. And I want to offer one final thought. Some of my, at least for me, best insights into the Bible come from just staring at a short bit of the Bible and thinking about it. And a little insight into my own devotional life, here's probably the thing I have thought about most in my own prayer life over the last year. And it's ridiculously simple, but it's helped me as I've prayed. When you get to the end of this story, you read of the most wonderful picture of no more crying, mourning, weeping, pain. It's just brilliant. But I was just utterly struck. Really simple. Jesus still has his scars. I thought, isn't that interesting? Like you often look at a scar and you think, oh, it's not properly healed yet. There's more healing to do. But in heaven, in our glorious future, Jesus still has these scars. The picture language John uses is, behold, there is a lamb. Looks like it's been slain. It's like, wow, it's all perfect, but there's scars there. But maybe in our future, there is like a permanent reminder of the suffering of the cross. But it's there to kind of make the story an even better story. And I've kind of just been mulling over, does the same happen with our scars too? When we get to the end of our story, maybe our deepest pain will not be completely forgotten. But maybe at the end of the story, we will be able to say, hey, it's kind of woven into my story to make it a better story. Yes, I experienced this, but Jesus is better. Jesus is stronger. 
Yea, though I walked through the valley of the shadow of death, he was with me. Maybe in our glorious future, there's still a reminder of what we have walked through as there is of our Saviour. That has kept me going at times. Why don't we all stand to our feet? We're going to sing a closing song. But I want to remind you that there will be a prayer team at the end if you'd like prayer for anything at all. Obviously, I imagine some people here, you're just going through a tough time. And we would love to stand with you and just pray for you, that you'd know God in the midst of it. But I also wonder whether there are some people here and part of God's purpose for you, the language is helpful, his calling on your life is to be a healer of suffering. We want to see the pastoral gift flourish here. We want to see gifts of mercy being given opportunities. If you're called to that, we'd love to pray for you that some of that calling is fanned into flame. That you can be a healer of suffering. It's part of God's plan for you. First though, let's just worship our risen King, our suffering Saviour. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.